0: In both its forms, powder and liquid, Pestroy means doomsday to us insects. For this new insect destroyer contains a lot of DDT, not just a little. Its DDT content is even higher than government specifications. But the really sure kill feature of this insect killer isn't simply that it contains DDT, it's the way that it makes sure that bugs get the DDT that's in it. The same deadly effectiveness of the liquid form is found in the Pestroy powder, it is so easy to apply because of a new, efficient dispenser package. All people have to do is to press the patented top like this. It's a handful of concentrated death. This powder is truly activated. It contains stabilized pyrethrum, an ingredient which literally stampedes insects from their hiding places to bring them into contact with DDT, indoors or outdoors. Stirs them up, drives them out of cracks and crevices,
1: It is not my contention that chemical insecticides must never be used. I do contend that we have put poisonous and biologically potent chemicals indiscriminately into the hands of persons largely or wholly ignorant of their potentials for harm. DDT is a chemical pesticide that was made popular during World War II. Old commercials such as the one you just heard marketed DDT as the wonder chemical that killed off all those unwanted pests in your home and on the farm. It wasn't until 1962 when Rachel Carlson's book Silent Spring completely changed the game. Rachel Carson's book called into the question the use of DDT given its harmful effects on human health and of course the environment. Because of Rachel's radical positions, DDT was banned in the United States and in most of the world. More than five decades after Rachel Carlson's book, we're not as concerned about pesticides. Today, what's on the forefront of many global leaders is the status of our climate. During this episode, we'll be talking about the Paris Agreement, the science behind climate change, and how it actually impacts you and the American economy. Thanks for listening so far. Now stay tuned for the rest of What in the World. You've tuned into What in the World right here on WERA 96.7 FM and streaming online at WERA.FM. I am your host, Bumi Akinisotu. On this episode, we are looking at the debate around climate change. What exactly is in the Paris Agreement? And from an economic perspective, what countries stand to gain by adopting the goals of the Paris Agreement? My guest today is here to answer all of this and make it relevant to your everyday life. My guest is none other than Maddie Stanislaus. Uh, he is a senior advisor at the World Economic Forum. And his expertise is around waste management. And when I say waste management, I don't mean in the mafia sense. I mean in the materials uh, sense and and what we do with with the stuff that we're no longer using. So he uh, knows about how we can use the stuff that we throw away in a more efficient and environmentally sound manner. He was the assistant administrator of the Office of Land and Emergency Management at the EPA the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, And that office dealt with cleanups uh, and the redevelopment of land that's been contaminated. And that office also responded responded to environmental uh, emergencies. What I appreciate about Maddie, though, is that while he currently works on the international level, he's also worked on domestic issues from environmental justice to community uh, renewal. Uh, He's also a New Yorker uh, and grew up in the same neighborhood as my favorite rap group, uh, the Wu Tang Clan. And he's a a blues and jazz uh, fanatic. And you'll hear a little little bit more about that from Maddie at the end of the show. But Maddie, welcome to What in the World. Thanks, Boomi. Uh, it's great to it's great to have you here. So, Maddie, how did you get to the world of um, environment of the environment, and how did you get to this global world of environmental issues?
0: I would say that it started globally, went locally, and then back globally. <laughs> okay. You know, um, my first uh, real exposure and real drive to address environmental issues came from an incident known as the Bhopal incident. Uh, where a company formerly known as Union Carbide uh, basically released a chemical that caused severe death and injury uh, uh, that continues to this day in terms of the consequence to people. A lot of these people were the poorest in India um, and, and really happened because of tremendous mismanagement of that plant, you know. So I, you know, coming from a technical field, I'm a chemical engineer first and then became a lawyer. You know, during my chemical engineering studies, you know, it was um, it was clear to me that we need to link the, you know, be a chemical production or economic activity to human rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done, as a Sri Lankan who immigrated from Sri Lanka, I did a lot of work on human rights. Mm-hmm. And so I basically connected the issues of the environment and human rights and working on what now people now call environmental justice, mm-hmm. You know, which is a recognition that the poorest in society are the most at risk, the most burdened by pollution, mm-hmm. uh, the most at risk from catastrophes, uh, human or, or, or man-made catastrophes. And I worked in my career to uh, empower them and build solutions regarding that. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I really help work with, leaders from uh, uh, community sector, leaders from government, uh, and leaders from the private sector, is uh, trying to bridge the gap between the harm. And opportunity, because these same communities who are burdened by harm also want jobs. Right. Uh, But they not only want a seat at the table, they want to drive that table. Mm -hmm. You know, so we pulled together uh, a planning program so that the communities uh, can work on planning for their neighborhoods in a way that promotes economic development, but economic development that serves their needs. Right affordable housing that serves their needs and doesn't displace them. Right. You know, so that's my, my framing of environmental issues, be it local issues or global issues. It is very much the human dimension, but also very much recognizing that the most vulnerable are most at risk and needs to be at the forefront of all solutions.
1: Right. Right. And you're not the typical um, uh, when I when I first came into this space, my understanding about the environment is like the tree hugger. Mm -hmm. Right. The image of this person who's like, you know, saying save the animals Mm -hmm. and save the trees. And what I like about you is that. You bring, like you said, not just the human aspect, but like there's a broader picture that this issue is connected to, which is affordable housing, which is making sure that there are jobs for people who, who need the jobs. So Maddie, um, let's let's jump right into the the local domestic issue um, of, of the environment. So our listeners may remember a time in America where like rivers caught on fire and um, asthma was at an all-time high in cities like New York and in Chicago and and LA. I've seen the commercial of the crying Indian, you know, who's walking through the polluted streets. And and this was an advertisement from the 70s about, you know, keep America beautiful, right? Um, And then, of course, we have the start of the EPA in the 70s under under a Republican president. What are some of the environmental issues, Maddie, that you've seen here in the United States and in your own work or um, that you've observed that have really shifted the dynamic of or the role of the environment um, in our society and and has really elevated the conversation? What are some experiences that jump out at you or experiences that you've had in your work?
0: Maybe I'll talk about kind of the trajectory of the environment and politics and people. That'd be great um in the 60s and 70s uh or even earlier than that uh, you know Rachel Carson who I view her as the the mother of the environmental mm-hmm. movement who recognized that chemicals without verifying safety was a problem um, and she was uh, belittled for adv- advocating that um for the longest time you know for the longest time The chemical industry then thought that they never had to live within uh, nature's boundaries. Mm -hmm. They actually thought that they could engineer their ways out of the natural boundaries of nature. But then rivers caught on fire, (laughs) Uh, literally. Yeah. uh, The Cayuga River Mm -hmm. uh, caught on fire. Uh, You had homes built on, basically on top of toxic sites. You have children uh, dying. Um, So those led to... uh, The Clean Water Act. It it led to something known as Superfund, which is a recognition that multiple toxic sites uh, around the country. Uh, It it led to the uh, the Clean Air Act. Uh, And it was a bipartisan issue because it was a local issue. Mm -hmm. Because people saw uh, water uh, on fire people saw contaminated water r- resulting in uh, disease to themselves, risk to their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a byproduct. it was not even a political issue necessarily. But that, that has shifted dramatically in this country. I, in a sense, I think people have taken the environment for granted, mm. and it has been taken over by interest groups. Um, and I think the public needs to take responsibility of is the environment important to you, Mm -hmm. and what can you do? Mm -hmm. Because in the absence of that, those who have a financial interest Mm -hmm. will always skew it towards the exclusive financial interest. Mm -hmm. And that's currently where we have right now.
1: So, but Maddie, you know, to that point, if you're talking about the public being more aware, right? If you're someone who is in a community that's sort of Mm well-to-do, you don't have to worry about clean water, um, you don't have to worry about contaminated land. Your trash is picked up and it's, and there's a landfill that's, you know, maintained in your area. If you don't have the visible signs of environmental pollution or the environmental risk, what is the, what is the reason for you to care? Well,
0: I'm a, let's take the, the financial center of the globe. Uh, with the, the workers there significantly working in the kind of communities you're talking about.
1: You're talking about like New York? Or- I'm talking
0: about New York City, mm-hmm. who one day turned around and, and seen large segments of the place they would work inundated by water.
1: Hmm.
0: And it is clear by all scientific studies that the rising tide that created Superstorm Sandy, Mm -hmm. or or result of Superstorm Sandy, is very much related to the climate. Mm. You know, so you see the direct consequence of environmental conditions Mm -hmm. uh, impacting people's lives. The number of people died. Uh, Tremendous economic consequence in lower
1: Manhattan.
0: but you saw the impact on the financial sector globally, mm. uh, because you had financial transactions that were impeded yeah. by this. Right. Um, so, in a sense, it was in everyone's face, right? Uh, so, you know, just to cite a uh, some statistics, uh, a bipartisan study uh, that was put together by um, Henry Paulson, mm-hmm. who was the Treasury Secretary under George Bush, Michael Bloomberg, and Tom Steyer who brought together a team of folks to look at what is the economic consequence of failing to do things, mm-hmm. right? So their analysis shows that we, we will see, due to increased severity of storms in the United States, mm-hmm. we will see 3 to $7 billion in average annual damage mm. to largely the Gulf Coast and the East Coast.
1: Wow.
0: Um, so let's talk about food. Food and farmers— have been the first to be impacted by climate change, but the last to be consulted. And I believe it's, it's a failure of those who are involved in the advocacy of climate change and not to bring farmers into the mix, mm-hmm. you know, both substantively and frankly, politically. Right. Um, so get your head around this. Uh, they predict 50 to 70% loss in annual yields of crops. So this is corn, this is soy, this is wheat, this is cotton, right? This is all uh, occurring. And, And I know that many agribusinesses have already seen the shifting of their crops going north. They are looking at the risk of what they call stranded assets. All of their infrastructure in places that are no longer productive are at risk, plus the yields are being lowered.
1: So if the yields are lower, I just want to make sure people sort of understand, because if you live in a city that and you've never seen a farm, you may not understand how the corn gets from the, the field to... You know, the tortilla chips at the at the grocery store. So you're saying, for example, corn that's grown in, you know, Illinois, mid-state, downstate Illinois, used to produce all of the food that we consume, that, that we eat, um, the cotton that's in our clothing that we use for vehicles or whatever, fabric, that's um, yielding at a lower rate, which means that there's a scarcity, right, of those items, which which could mean that the cost of those items go up. Yeah. At the end, is that is that the right way of well,
0: thinking about it? I would say the shorter term issue is the costs will go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the midterm issue is the absence of food. Huh. I mean, we need to get our heads around that. Yeah, you know. So I, I was at an event of representatives from the southern nations, you know, island nations. Mm-hmm. They are already seeing their crops at risk, mm-hmm. um, and they're all already trying to figure out. How do they feed their population? So the U.S.'s breadbasket feeds not only America, feeds the world. Right. You know. So the, the, we're looking at a future where we have less food available and the food that is available is going to be more costly.
1: And we're looking also at a future where the population will obviously increase. Absolutely. So the demand, the supply will decrease. And the demand. But the demand will increase, that's right. which that is, is right. um, something that's not good. That's right. That's, right. that's, <laughs> that's right. good. Not mm-hmm. good. So let's take all of this information now you've talked sort of locally, let's go, go global, right? With the meat of sort of where we are today in the world. and. The controversy about you know President Trump pulling out of the the Paris Agreement. So um, the the idea behind climate change uh, is that the Earth's atmosphere is getting warmer, right? Um, and the warmth is causing just these catastrophic changes uh, to our weather patterns and water levels and and so on. And and uh, there are these greenhouse gases that are being emitted that that are even more harmful to the Earth and and to us. We're coming up on the two year anniversary of the uh, adoption of the paris agreement it was uh, adopted december 2015 Um, and it's the first legally binding international agreement where countries around the world said you know what we're going to finally put some concrete steps to addressing climate change so maddie Give us the 101 about the Paris Agreement. What what exactly are we agreeing to, or what do countries agree to?
0: So just uh, correcting a, a little bit. That yeah. the, so U.S. is not technically out of the climate change agreement. Uh, that'll occur sometime in the future, although statements have been made that U.S. plans to pull out. The Paris Agreement basically recognizes very important for the first time ever that we need to keep the, the increase of the global temperature to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And that's the levels, as scientists conclude, will prevent the most catastrophic consequences to the world, mm-hmm. right? So uh, w- what the agreement puts in place is um, a mechanism for all the signatories uh, to determine for themselves how will they will reduce their gr- greenhouse gas emissions to achieve that goal. And the agreement has uh, periodic uh, gatherings to see how each of the countries are doing. Mm-hmm. Right? But, but it's important to understand that while it's a, an, a, an agreement that all the globe currently are signatories to that, It's voluntary pledges, Mm -hmm. right? So each country uh, basically says, well, here's how I'm going to meet it. Right. Uh, They deliver these pledges as a commitment towards achieving that. But a key aspect, one of the most important aspects of it is transparency. It's the how... The countries will say here's how I am achieving my commitment Mm -hmm. so that's what's happening in Germany right now at Bonn right now the exclusive conversation is outside of side conversation Mm -hmm. the exclusive conversation is uh, how do I demonstrate that my commitments are real my reductions are real and how do I make sure it's transparent so people can verify that?
1: So how do we make sure basically that the science is working that the no, that no, no, the no. data is or not
0: the science? But if a if a country says I'm gonna change my fuels, I'm gonna invest in this kind of renewables, that I'm gonna change the, the kinds of transportation to result, you know, how do I know your statements uh, are accurate? Got it. You know, and how do I make it sufficient enough so the global community can actually look at that and say, yeah, those are real issues and those are not. I mean, that's a very—so they're working towards something what's called a playbook Mm -hmm. where all the countries know the rules of the game in terms of— what information and how the information is presented so the mm-hmm. world can scrutinize mm-hmm. uh, their commitment.
1: You mentioned a phrase in there that I just want to unpack a little bit. And you talked about uh, pre-industrial levels. And one of the criticisms uh, that I've read from the Cato Institute in particular, uh, which is a more uh, right-leaning um, or organization, one of the things that they mentioned, which I hadn't thought about, which is... Um, there's no like definitive marker of what "quote unquote" pre-industrial means, right? Like, there's no date. We're not saying, you know, anything before 1945 or whatever. So, just generally, what is what do we mean by the pre-industrial level?
0: Sure. Um, what pre-industrial and post-industrial really means from a scientific perspective is greenhouse gases associated with the industrialization. Largely, uh, greenhouse gases are associated with the combustion of coal, combustion of oil. Mm-hmm. So th- there is no scientific debate that we can distinguish in the atmosphere greenhouse gases that are naturally occurring and greenhouse gases that are from industrial activity. Um, so there's no debate there. So I'll just give a historic perspective The first prediction the planet could warm occurred in 1896. And so, one, we could point specifically uh, based on uh, kind of radiological studies Mm -hmm. of those gases in the environment that are due to natural occurring conditions and those that are due to industrial conditions. Mm -hmm. We know, and any uh, elementary school child in their science class has studied, that the chemistry of combustion results... And, and carbon dioxide. Right. So the more you burn, the more you have greenhouse gases. Right. right?
1: And carbon dioxide being one of those. Greenhouse one of those gases. greenhouse. Yeah. And if you have
0: more than the natural level in the atmosphere, what does that do? Mm-hmm. It it creates more heat being contained in the earth. Again, a child in, in her in her laboratory have done studies that show that if you do an aquarium. <laughs> You know, if you create enough gas, the heat becomes trapped. Mm -hmm. You know, so these are not any debate, you know. What I would say that those who want to uh, not do anything will, will point at is, well, there's a natural variability of the earth. Absolutely. But we know that these, the, the levels of greenhouse gases are far beyond that natural variability. And all the, the data kind of shows that. And maybe I'll just go a little political here. Go for it. All right. The, when did the shift from a bipartisan approach, most recently, to a partisan approach to climate change happen? A Supreme Court decision called Citizens United allowed basically unfettered uh, uh, money to go into political campaigns. So, coal and oil uh, sector put a lot of money, uh, both in terms of lobbying and campaign funding, but also a lot of money into developing alternative theories, right?
1: Uh, what they might view as another way of looking at the science.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so they made a lot, they, they've made a lot of presentations about natural variability. You know, they've taken an essential natural variability uh, and science out of context. What they fail to consistently do is talk about the data. You know what does the data show about industrial greenhouse gases in the environment? There's no debate there. Mm-hmm. What is the science about combustion? No debate there. You know, and if you continue to burn. In a, in a contained environment called the earth, mm-hmm. it's going to increase. This is a basic science, and mm-hmm. this is an elementary school science.
1: Um, let's jump to the role of cities and local government in par. well, on the, uh, with the Paris Agreement and in and, and Bonn. Um, city mayors, uh, county officials, and sort of the who's who of the environmental space um, were in Bonn and talking about what they're doing at the local level to address the issue of climate change. So Maddie, talk to us a little bit about what's happening around the country, even though we've got some distance from the federal level, right? The federal government and the current administration um, you know, is pulling away from this. What are local leaders and yeah. communities doing to address this issue?
0: Well, I think the great thing is that local government leaders, both local and multinational business leaders and in, environmental uh, leaders have come together and said, well, we still want to lead. And in a sense, it's all, uh, doing things locally has always been my view of how do you build a sustained strategy. Um, so one, uh, e- even though the US's official position continues to be, as you articulated, uh, we have a lot of these local leaders who are, are leading a delegation in uh, the climate discussions uh, currently. Mm-hmm. You know, but but I think more importantly, uh, what these local leaders are doing at the local level is pushing renewable energy, uh, pushing uh, critical importance of adaptation. For example, you know, making sure that uh, we're not at harm from from storms. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think that for the foreseeable future, there's a tremendous opportunity and where I think your listeners should engage locally. You know, so uh, renewable uh, energy tax credits at the local level, local planning. Making sure that it's that the transportation options enable mass transportation. Mm-hmm. You know, it uh, one it reduces the greenhouse gas impacts, but but it also enables a wider array of society to participate uh, in the economy.
1: Well, and talk up a little bit um, about plastic. Yeah. I know that's an interest of yours and, mm-hmm. and something you're familiar with. I. I am not at mm-hmm. all well versed in the world of plastics, but I read an interesting stat that said by the year 2050, there'll be more plastics in the ocean than fish. That's right. That's right. Which is ridiculous mm-hmm. and scary to me. And I don't, I, I mean, I, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the harmful effects mm-hmm. um, on the ocean and on the fish, but just also on our day-to-day lives, right? We eat fish and, you know, they're a part of our ecosystem. So, Maddie, what's being done, you know, uh, in the United States or around the world around plastics?
0: Yeah, well, let, let me take a, a step back before I answer that question directly. It's important to understand that we are nowhere near able to meet our two-degree goal in the Paris Agreement
1: we meaning the globe the, the world, the we're, world. Not, we're not ready. we're not even
0: talk about it we talk about the globe okay because all of their commitments will come nowhere near the two degrees why
1: uh
0: it's just when you add up all the emission reductions it's not enough okay because most of the emission reductions come from fuel switching going from coal and oil uh to natural gas you okay. know and, and then investing more in renewable energies um some changes in the transportation mix—you know—you get a potentially more electrical vehicles, more transportation. Those are all good stuff, mm-hmm. but that's not enough. We need to fundamentally change our economy. We need to change how we consume things, change because uh, studies show that uh, materials, raw materials that drive our economy, uh, are exploding fact, uh, a recent study by the United Nations International Resource Panel shows that we're going to have to increase our raw materials three times uh, to maintain our economic standing.
1: And so let me just make sure I understand. When you say raw materi- materials, you mean the stuff that we're pulling out of the earth. Yeah, metals, metals minerals. Right. Uh, uh, that go into our phones, that yeah. go into our cars, right. that go into being, building, yeah. you know, facilities. Those materials, we have to increase the amount that we need Yep. in order to.
0: That's right. And that's why, um, I mean, this term started in Europe And it's becoming popular globally, the idea of a circular economy, Mm -hmm. an idea that we need to continue to maintain and provide for the growing population and the growing middle class in the population, which is driving the demand for stuff.
1: Right. Right. Right.
0: But how do we provide for these folks um, without impeding their growth? I mean, the developing world should, in fact, grow. Uh, but how do we do that in a way that is not as dependent on digging stuff out of the ground? Mm-hmm. You know, so the idea is uh, taking metal from a phone, you know, extracting it, putting it back into a phone. Mm. You know, have plastics that not, don't go into the ocean, but plastics that can be recovered and re, uh, uh, remanufactured into the same products. So that's a whole vision idea the circular economy Mm -hmm. uh so part of it is is, it's highly technical how do you make sure that you design a product Mm -hmm. with materials that you can in fact re Mm -hmm. put it back into that product once it's uh, used
1: so it's kind of like recycling but on crack
0: well i wouldn't put it in that way (laughs) but 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 create a system that says we can no longer live in a society that continues to throw things away You know, because we, the collective we, at every income strata, will be will, is at the consequence of that, mm-hmm. right? So we need to figure this out. Right, yeah. right.
1: Yeah, and if we keep throwing stuff away, like our plastics, we'll have more plastics in the ocean. Well, just fish. to underscore
0: the plastics in the ocean, um, uh, again, by 2050, there'll be more plastics in the ocean uh, by weight than fish. Mm-hmm. You know, the various studies show that 60% percent or so of marine species already exhibit uh, plastics uh, contamination mm. so we really face the risk today of eating fish with plastics Wow right but but conversely we need to also recognize that plastic we cannot live in a society today without plastics right True. it's how do we redesign meeting our needs? But do it in a way that recognizes the downside of of mismanagement. How do we create a better system? But how do both the consumer and the producer play part in that responsibility? Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, jumping ahead to what people, what can people do locally? Right. Obviously, in their home, they could recycle, they could reduce their energy demand, um, but they could also push for recycle in, investment in recycling infrastructure. Uh, little things like a collection system it goes a long way it is a valuable product this creates jobs in america you know so we can do that uh, we can push for uh bonds state bonds or local bonds for major transportation infrastructure that reduces the climate change demand so a lot of things and i would say we should focus exclusively at the local level
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, There were a couple of things in there that uh, I want to address about, you know, balancing the economic growth and and doing right by the environment. Again, one of the arguments that I've read um, against uh, the Paris Agreement in general was that, you know, signing on to these international agreements um comes at the risk of American businesses and the American economy, and and we've seen this argument play out, for example, with the clean power plan, um, where you know we try to reduce the amount of emissions from coal, um, and people said that the you know the EPA was taking away jobs and killing communities. So, Maddie, and your if you had to talk to, um, people who were still on the fence about being able to do both, you know, be environmentally um, you know, responsible and keep jobs in communities. How would you what would you say to them to help them understand that you can actually do both? Cuz people just say I mean, they say or say we we we, you know, it's impossible.
0: Well, I mean, the first thing to underscore, there are far more jobs in clean energy uh, than there is in coal today. Uh, The loss of coal happened because of pure economic factors. Uh, It was was the price differential between coal uh, and uh, natural gas, uh, coupled with automation in the coal industry. When we look into the future from from a purely technological economic perspective, technologies will always become more efficient. It's the very nature of technology and innovation. So, uh, take uh, photovoltaic cells, you know, so what we rely on to get uh, renewable, uh, renewable energy, you know, mm-hmm. from the sun, you know, energy from the sun. Um, its efficiency has gone up so much that we're very close to being, in some places, competitive with oil, right? It happened because of innovation, right? And that innovation creates jobs. It puts us uh, at an equal standing globally. So, but, so there is just kind of the jobs dimension lots of jobs from clean energy lots of jobs in the recycling industry but there's a there's a, there's a, a economic consequence of failing to act mm. so uh, let me just underscore this right three to seven billion dollars in annual damage a year if you don't do anything to the East Coast and to the Gulf Coast um, fifty to seven percent loss in in production so we are at the risk of of severe economic consequence uh, to us if we fail to do something. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the global dimension. China is investing heavily in renewable energy, uh, in research and development, in electric vehicles. They are nurturing their small businesses. Ten thousand small business startups a month in China. Wow. Uh, so we 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 have to make a choice here. Do we continue to compete globally? or do we particularly put our small businesses at a disadvantage? Mm -hmm. You know, if we send them the signals of don't invest in these technologies, and if we don't provide the resources of research and development, small business loans, we are on a trajectory where we're gonna be outflanked by the investment in technology, the investment in small businesses and investment people is happening globally.
1: I hope our listeners really take to heart what Maddie is saying. Um, it's not like uh, you know we ourselves can fix like all the plastic is- issues, like as an individual, but we can all do our little part to make sure that um, you know in our homes and in our communities we have the infrastructure, as you've mentioned, Maddie, to to address this. Um, and and before we end, you know, one of the questions from our listeners um, was around science, and uh, Maddie, you're an engineer. Um, slightly different field, but still, you know, their their husband and wife, science and, and engineering, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Evelyn from Bridgeport, Connecticut. She wanted to know essentially is is there a middle ground that we can come to, um, you know, on the spectrum of climate change is happening and climate change isn't happening? Like, could it be that we're somewhere in the middle um, on this on this issue?
0: Well, I actually don't think that there is even among the most Extreme perspectives, uh, much that defend that will take that I'll argue that climate change is not happening. I think where some argue is that climate change is happening not because of human reasons, mm. right? Uh, they and they argue that if it's not happened to humans, we should not impose cost on humans. Right? Uh, and so they argue a purely economic argument, again, overlaid by this uh, articulation of Earth's natural cycle, Earth's natural variability. And we could all get caught up into these various narratives and various arguments. All I say is ask a farmer. Like, ask the agricultural industry. See what's happening on the ground. Here are the things that are happening on the ground. We know what's happening. Houston had a flood. You know, that happened. Uh, The production yields in the Midwest are going down. Maple syrup, you cannot really get maple syrup. Maple syrup has shifted to Canada now. So the Vermont maple syrup, maple syrup production has gone down tremendously.
1: Because of climate change. Because of
0: climate change. Mm-hmm. right? So, so there's already an agricultural consequence of happening. Uh, we see more severe uh, events happening. Mm-hmm. You know, So we do know that um, the consequences of climate change are happening um, and will continue to happen. Uh, we do know, again, uh, a child in a, an elementary school laboratory or science class will know the very simple formula if you burn stuff you produce uh, a greenhouse gas if you contain a greenhouse gas in any environment or any gas frankly <laughs> it reaches a point of having some consequence mm-hmm. that consequence to the globe is climate change mm-hmm. right L- let's even assume that there's some debate what's the cost of inaction right the cost of inaction is we put us at risk right human health risk Uh, economic risk, and uh, looking purely as a quote-unquote America-first perspective, we are putting America at risk of being left behind, Mm. right? We have potential tremendous additional costs of not investing in adaptation, uh, tremendous additional loss of economic productivity, but failing to invest in innovation, in technology, in our small businesses. Um, But this is happening around the globe, you know, so... We could say that we can believe what we believe. The rest of the world is moving forward.
1: I want us to move forward with the rest of the world. Um, and, uh, Maddie, I want to thank you for enlightening us about this very complicated topic. There's a lot of different ways we can we can go with this. And um, I hope our listeners have a greater appreciation, not just for the global dynamic of the Paris Agreement, but just locally, how it impacts our lives here. certainly impacts our local economies, as, as Maddie mentioned. So in true fashion on this show uh, we talk about we talk a lot about some heavy issues uh, that get the heart racing Uh, but every now and again I believe we should listen to some music uh, to keep us in a good mood and I ask our guests to give me a song uh, that keeps them in a good mood and so Maddie uh, what is the song you chose to exit out of this conversation on on the Paris Agreement and the environment
0: well I mean uh, I I chose um, Miles Davis you know who I you know one of the most brilliant musicians you know uh, i a, a flawed uh, personal background but a brilliant musician you know <laughs> uh, and i uh, love his music and um, freddie the freeloader is uh, a tune that always gets me going mm-hmm. you know so
1: awesome thank you uh, great taste in music maddie uh again thank you for joining us um for our uh what is hopefully the beginning of more conversations around the environment and how it impacts our daily lives thank you all for tuning in to what in the world you can find us on mixcloud at what in the world podcast you can find us on facebook at facebook.com what in the world podcast we are also on twitter at w i t w pod and so again thank you all for listening and take care in case you want more information on what you can do to prevent climate change and do right by the earth I encourage you to have a listen to the Green and Sexy radio show right here on WERA 96.7 FM. This show is hosted by Leonardo Virabro Robinson and co-hosted by Miriam the Styrofoam Mom. The show broadcasts live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time again on 96.7 FM and streams online on WERA. Dot FM. You can find them on Facebook as well under the Green and Sexy Radio Show. What I like is that it blends recycled hits from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and you get to learn locally and globally um, about environmental issues. So tune in again to the Green and Sexy Radio Show to stay green.